Hello, and welcome to AgTech So What, brought to you by the AgThentic Group. I'm Sarah Nolette. In our last episode, we looked at the challenge of biologicals, what they are, and how we can know if they work. In this episode, we speak with two founders of AgTech startups in the ag inputs space, one in the US and one in Australia. We wanted to highlight these two because, well, the founders' journeys are great, but also because they showcase two business models that we talked about in our last episode as having high potential for helping to bring ag inputs, including biologicals and even blended products in the future, to market. You know, what do we do today? We blanket fields and farms with insecticide because farmers can't take the risk. When I started my career in ag and I went to a startup, there was really no venture community. There was no venture ecosystem for agriculture. That's Jacqueline Hurd, the founder and CEO of EncoChem, an ag tech startup that has raised $70 million to develop novel crop protection solutions. She's also a venture partner at Enterra Capital. And before that, you heard Nancy Shellhorn, the co-founder and CEO of pest management system RapidAIM, which uses sensors that can identify pests based on insect behavior. Both Jacqueline and Nancy have research backgrounds. Jacqueline has a PhD in biology and a degree in biochemistry, and Nancy has a background in entomology. In this episode, we'll hear about their journeys from researcher to founder within the tough landscape of ag tech, where, as we know, science and tech aren't enough to solve for adoption and get to impact and returns. And just for transparency, before we jump in, Nancy's startup, RapidAIM, is one of our portfolio companies at Tenacious Ventures. Here's Nancy, who loved her research career, but became increasingly frustrated that her scientific discoveries just weren't having an impact for farmers. Probably about 30 years ago, I became interested in entomology because of the way in which insects compete with humans for food and the often very environmentally unacceptable ways that we use to control them. And I was taking a class at university and thought, wow, I could have a career in really trying to solve this problem. So that's that's how I got into it. And I was, until very recently, I was a research scientist at the CSIRO looking to solve, basically, to arrive at uh, sustainable pest management, so landscape-scale pest management. And something that I always noticed was that it didn't matter how exciting our research was, there was a massive barrier for growers to adopt more sustainable practice. And it was mostly that pest management was a guessing game. So they needed to use insecticide, not just to kill pest, but as insurance to reduce the risk of pest causing damage. Was there a particular pest that you were initially interested in? You mentioned kind of sitting there in that class and thinking about pests competing with humans. Was there a, like an example or a kind of pest or, or a, you know, part of the system that got you really interested? Well, I guess at first I thought I was going to be a zoo vet, and then I did an internship at the St. Louis Zoo and realized that that wasn't quite as exciting as I thought. It wasn't so much a particular pest. It was at the same time that there was a greater demand to have the thinking around agricultural systems using more ecology. So agricultural ecology was really starting to become popular there, and it was around sustainability, around thinking about the biology of organisms and and how to use bio, biologicals and beneficial organisms to suppress pests. And it was more about how you created the environment suitable for the good insects. So things like ladybird beetles and insect predators that feed on pests and lace wings and, and parasitic wasp 
to suppress pest, to basically reduce the damage that it was causing on crops. So it was more of the concepts than a particular pest in, I'd say. And did you learn about that at the zoo? Like, I'm, I'm really curious about the zoo part. How did you end up at a zoo in St. Louis? Well, originally I thought I was going to be a veterinarian. And so that's what I was doing for my undergraduate. And then the St. Louis Zoo recruited about four of us because the zoos often have problems with inbreeding depressions and that's quantitative genetics. And quantitative genetics was my minor. And so then I thought, well, I should be a zoo vet then because I could do both quantitative genetics and uh, veterinarian practice at the zoo, but it's really not all that cracked up to me. So I went back and did my master's and it was the in, in agriculture ecology or in the area of ecology. And it was the agriculture class that and entomology that I first learned a lot about insects and just the amount of damage that they cause. And even today with our, you know, 40 years on from really using the best tools that we have for pest management, we still lose about 37% of our crops to insect pest. And in fact, our insecticide use hasn't declined at all. So it is a huge challenging problem. You mentioned the agroecological phrase. And I remember when I was in grad school, I used that phrase in a presentation and sort of almost phrased it like, of course, we need to move in this direction for all those reasons you just cited and how critical it was. And I expected that was going to be taken as given. And then we could move past it into, you know, whatever research (laughs) I was doing. And it was not taken as given. So I I don't know what's your experience been with that phrase and, and some of these concepts of using more of nature to be a solution. Have you met resistance? And and I don't know, how has that changed over time? Yeah. Fascinating observation, Sarah. Yes, certainly. You know, when you're a researcher, you're always playing in the future. You have a view about how things could be better and you're testing hypotheses. But the realities are that we all love to have our fresh food that doesn't cost a lot. And industrial agriculture has meant that we have very low cost food, but it is not often amenable to practices that are super sustainable which often take a lot of labor and knowledge and skill. So it's not a given. And the interesting thing is for years at CSIRO, I worked in the area of landscape scale pest management, which was really about agricultural mosaics, mosaics of uh, native remnant vegetation that we demonstrated time and time again was fantastic habitat for these beneficial organisms and also native fauna and flora. But the beneficial organisms like your ladybird beetles and your lacewings and your parasitoids that would then move into the crops and um, can provide pest control. The challenge is that we hadn't solved the big problem. And the big problem was that farmers still had to guess about pest management. And so applying insecticide across a field and a farm, it's a means of insurance. And it's about reducing the risk of loss and cost from insect pest. And that was actually the huge motivational piece for us to leave CSRO and take our technology to the marketplace. Jacqueline Hurd entered the startup world much earlier on in her career. She joined a small startup after finishing her postdoc and was then recruited by Monsanto to work in their in-house venture capital team. But science has always been her passion. Well, I think science, for me, it was, (laughs) I was always interested in nature, I guess. 
I loved, I, I, I had a little notebook where I watched squirrel behavior from my bedroom window when I was a little kid. I mean, so, and so I guess that's sort of like a scientific method. I knew I had to record it. So I guess I was always meant to be a scientist. And then, and then it was like, okay, well, I love animals. So maybe a veterinarian or maybe a doctor. And then, and then I started taking classes. I was pre-med. I started taking classes in science and I absolutely loved the creativity of designing an experiment you know, the killer experiment to answer the right question, to know if you should go forward in this way or not, and to build upon knowledge that had been, you know, created before you. And so that's when I turned to biotech and to do biotech work instead of going into to medicine. It's not super common for someone with a PhD and who's been in the research world to end up not only in startups, but then also in venture capital. Where did that come from? How did you decide you wanted to be on the entrepreneurship side? Yeah, I think it's this, it was always this passion for the combination of being a change agent and then fascinated with technology as a scientist. So I'd given opportunities to move more and more toward the business side of things and, and really found that the combination of technology and business were really an entrepreneurship or the place, the place that really I felt home. When you joined Monsanto, was there the same kind of, I would call it, you know, perception challenges around Monsanto that they've come to be known for? And did that play into your decision at all, given the kind of focus on impact that you have? Yeah, actually it did. So, you know, when I started my career in ag and I went to a startup, there was really no venture community. There was no venture ecosystem for agriculture. And so the way you got money to start your little company was to do collaborations with one of the majors. And so, you know, my perspective of joining Monsanto, even though I knew it was large, you know, multinational that had probably some reputational issues, was they were being the most forward thinking in terms of innovation and sourcing innovation. I mean, look what their acquisition of Climate Corp did for the idea of digital agronomy. I mean, they were at the forefront of so many things. And so, you know, probably some things around ways in which they could have communicated what they were trying to accomplish a little better. But I really came to respect the company for its forward thinking, its innovation, its motivation for change and to try to do good in in the industry and for the world. Mm. Yeah, I remember that was when we first met some of the conversations we had because I was on a sort of personal journey of figuring out how to think about this space and you know, yeah. were, were there good players and evil players and or is everyone in this kind of gray area and, and how does it all work and what's the role of science? And so I, yeah, I appreciate your insight on that, you know, the role of big companies in driving change and in partnering with small companies, which which is what you kind of did in, in helping to form Monsanto Growth Ventures. Was that yeah. like, what's the story behind how that came to be? Well, it's interesting because, you know, before that, my role was I led a a platform around discovery in the biotech organization at Monsanto. And we were starting little companies. So we would sort of give them capital to start the company. And then we would start a research collaboration with them. And then at the end of the day, we'd grow the value of the company and end up acquiring it. And we thought, well, okay, so, (laughs) you know, the life sort of the way in which Monsanto classically, I think, sourced innovation for their pipeline and what kept them sort of as market leaders was through M&A. But through these collaborations and other modes, I think there was a realization in the global strategy group that perhaps there's a different way to source innovation. 
And then at that time, of course, there were there was a, a budding sort of venture capital ecosystem in agriculture. So it seemed like the right time to look at that as a as a way, a new way to source innovation for the company. And so, you know, we started by some sort of an open innovation model. We said, okay, there's some entrepreneurs that have some really interesting intellectual property. I think they could do things that would really help what we're trying to accomplish. You start a little company and then you grow it and buy it. So it was a little bit of the same of the same model that we were doing before, but it was more explicit. And then we we grew to investing in, you know, things like Blue River and, you know, technologies, which is acquired by John Deere and, you know, all of these different things. And then, of course, the Climate Corps acquisition, which led to a lot of other sort of sourcing other additional modeling companies that could that could grow that internal platform. So one of the questions that gets asked is like, why couldn't the big company just do it themselves? Especially I think in the this space where it's pretty heavy R&D and you need a lot of scientific expertise, it seems like it, you know, it's not as obvious that some scrappy startup in a garage could actually do it better. What would your response to that be? I do think that big companies can be innovative, but I think it's a little bit of a mindset. So if you're really good at commercialization, there are a lot of checks and balances and people are kept a little bit constrained in the things that you could do, even though the company were, we were always trying to think of ways, well, how can we, can we give 10% of time to people to do just whatever they want to do, you know, ways in which to, to stimulate it, but it's just not an environment that fosters it so much. And when you think about some of the things that happen in startups where you have an entrepreneur going to a place like Monsanto might not be their top choice. So you have these entrepreneurs that can start little companies. And I think that's a great system for for starting these little ideas, seeding these ideas, seeding the technology, de-risking it. And then it makes sense to bring it internally. You know, when we bought Climate Corporation, I mean, my feeling is that you you think of the people that in Silicon Valley who started amazing, you know, AI folks who built a really interesting platform that could be applied to agriculture and weather prediction. Oh my gosh, you know, very challenging, right? And in some ways, Monsanto bought it as a whole capability, a whole group of massively talented AI people and brought it into the company. And the same for John Deere. I think when they bought Blue River, you bought vision experts, sensor experts, and immediately have a group, a solid group that's used to working together, that's a bolt-on and can grow within you know, your environment. There's no silver bullet formula for innovation in or outside of corporates. But as the ag tech ecosystem has evolved since the climate acquisition back in 2013, we've seen various models with different levels of efficacy. This is true for research organizations, too. Nancy and her two co-founders were, in fact, all scientists at CSIRO and worked together for years. But science is very different than commercialization. Yes, so we spun out of CSIRO. There were challenges, you know, even though the organization has really been promoting scientists to have uh, impact with their science, and there have been programs set up to try to encourage that, there really aren't a lot of scientists that then put their hands up and say, we're going to do this. And so anytime an organization is going through changes, I don't think they really knew what to do with us when we said, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to form our own company. We didn't move into a government spin-out. We wanted to form our own company. And we 
then license, work to license our technology that we invented while we were in CSRO. So CSRO is a shareholder. And we really wanted to form our own company because everything we had heard was that investors aren't as positive about investing in the government spin-up because by necessity, government has to be cautious and conservative, and which means that they move more slowly. And so raising in venture and raising investment when your government spin-up, everything we heard was that it's almost impossible. And so we were highly motivated to, to make our company successful and to grow. And so we formed our own company. We licensed our technology. And then we did our best, the best we could to get that first raise from main sequence. So those guys really supported us and backed us. And that gave, uh, helped us also exit CSRO. And so that, that was, that was a critical piece in, in getting us out the door and getting us started. And then we had a good, probably I'd say 16, almost 18 months before we were fully commercial and ready to go. So we were three people for quite a long time. Then, what was that course, like? The, the kind of difference between being in a lab with lots of resources and, a, and the world you'd been in that you were familiar with to, uh, I imagine, a pretty different day-to-day operating environment? Yeah. So we moved into a, what some would characterize as a hovel in the middle of the valley. And in fact, <laughs> uh, we weren't. you couldn't actually make a cup of coffee and boil the kettle at the same time without blowing a fuse. It, yeah, those were our, our humble beginnings. And it had little stickers all over it said, don't drill into the wall because of asbestos. So I'm sure, I'm sure it's earmarked to be demolished anytime soon. When you think about it, that's a big change for an internationally esteemed researcher. Nancy admits that changing her professional identity wasn't easy. Probably the, the point that, was, that I try to share with other scientists who are doing this is I really had to stop becoming one thing before I could start becoming something else. So going through that process of stop becoming a, no longer being a globally recognized research scientist, no longer basically carrying out those duties and expectations of reviewing manuscripts, of giving talks, of supervising students, and leaving that part of myself behind to then take my scientific skills and translate them over to actually taking a product to market that I think can have real world impact and change. And that was quite a massive transition and quite difficult, but I think it's absolutely, it's absolutely necessary. I imagine that was really challenging. Was it also scary, like all the risks that come with or are perceived to come with starting a startup? It's personally challenging for your ego. You know, I had a profile and was recognized and and got lots of invitations to to go do fun and important things. (laughs) And I had to spend a, a good year and a half declining all of those invitations and divesting all of my research to others. So personally, I had to make the choice to no longer be be known. And then I go into the startup world and the business world where I certainly um, have no recognition or profile, but I also, in terms of business skills, have no skills there. So I had to surround myself with mentors and people who are really savvy business people to help us make this transition, give us credibility, and start to take our product to market. So yeah, a massive both personally and professionally, but well worth it. I have zero regret from taking this opportunity. And not to suggest it's not challenging, it's challenging every single day, but it's also an amazing opportunity and super exciting. These days, scientists are viewing commercialization, and in particular, the venture-backed startup model, as an increasingly viable option for their innovations. Jacqueline says she's witnessed this shift over the course of her career, 
driven in part by two key technological changes in the past decade that have really opened the door for science-based startups, particularly in ag inputs. And one of them is, of course, data access and AI, machine learning, and data availability, visualization. And the other is really is the low cost of sequencing, which has really enabled, you know, synthetic biology. And, and so reading, writing genetic code has been incredibly influential. And so ENCO had, utilizes DNA encoded libraries, which is really, it's just a, an incremental innovation to combinatorial chemistry, which failed miserably for crop health and for pharma, but being able to deconvolute by being able to encode information in a DNA barcode attached to a molecule changed the game. And so this was something that was that was starting to be de-risked in the pharmaceutical space. And when we looked at one of the most important issues in agriculture today, crop health is incredibly important, right? You could lose up to 40% of your crops with global climate change. The types of pests are going to be changing very quickly. So we know we need to be agile, right? And we need to come up with solutions yesterday. I mean, there are things on farm today that absolutely need to be solved, like resistance to glyphosate and to herbicides. So to seeing crop protection as, as key to, to sustainability, right, to sustainable agriculture systems, and then saying, how can we overlay technology that's not being applied today with the technology from pharmaceuticals like DNA-encoded libraries, machine learning approaches, it seemed like it was just a very natural and incredibly important step to take. I mean, you think about that technology, and it got around some of the barriers to entry that exist in the crop protection space today you know, in terms of needing huge infrastructure and a proprietary library. Now you don't. And so we can approach it very differently. And that's where the idea for ENCO was born. The company uses data-driven experimentation to tune chemical properties and create crop protection products. And it's the evolution of DNA-encoded libraries and machine learning approaches that has meant that the barriers to entry for discovery are much lower. Even startups have access to technologies that can speed up the science. Yeah, so the way that it is that it previously has worked is that you'd start with a very large library of molecules and you'd take a single molecule at a time and you'd screen it against a pest and see if it actually controlled the pest that you are interested in. And so in order to screen enough molecules to find something that actually works, it's a massive exercise, right? So it requires a, a large infrastructure of robotics, automated screening, and things like that, as well as a proprietary library. So these are libraries that have been built up over years and years. And so it's it's really a very prized possession of the R&D majors. And so that sort of kept, that was the, the way it had worked. And so it really was sort of a, a difficult thing to replicate in a small company. When you talk about the, so it's not only the library and the computational power, but that process of actually saying, okay, does it work? You've got to have like a wet lab or you've got to have facilities where you test it in a crop. So can you, yeah, can you talk a little bit about, because I think some of these words yeah. are like, does it control the pest? And it's like, well, what does that mean? Do you, are you pipetting something on a leaf? Are you, yes. you know, what, like, how does it work? Yeah, you're spraying, you're spraying an individual molecule on a pest. So say, you know, a weed, palmer pigweed or something, you're spraying it on and do, you ask the question, does it? control it or kill it or or does it not and then if it does 
that's just that's just the beginning, right? Because it certainly doesn't do it in a way that is, you know, where you've proven that it's safe or that it could be applied outside or it's uh, it controls it in a fashion, you know, out in the environment. And so you have to do what's called optimization. So you take that that seed molecule that you think is an interesting starting point, and then you start creating variation around it. And when you create that variation, then you test all those variations to see if you've made an improvement. And one of the issues with the the system is that you're making variations sort of blind because you don't know what the target is that you've hit. In contrast to what Enco does, we know the target and we design things for that target, knowing that that target has proven to be useful in an agriculture setting against a particular pest. So if I, let me say that back to you and you tell me if I got it right. So the traditional model would have been, let's try to kind of see what's out there, like have this big library. And then there's sort of a matching process of like, we have this molecule. Does it work? Does it work on this? How does it work? What else happens? And then, you know, if there's a good sign, we kind of take it from there. Whereas you're saying, let's start from the other side and say, we know what we want to target. We want to you know, manage this pest or we want to control this disease. And then let's actually make the molecule or let's go find it. What happens next? How do you kind of work backwards? Yeah. So we, yeah, so exactly. So we, we say, okay, we look at all of the targets in pests that could you be used to kill a pest. So it's an essential protein in a, in a pest of interest. And we know that if we can inhibit it, stop it from working, that we would actually be able to kill the pest in the environment. And so we start there Then we ask the question, is this target found in other places? And do we have the opportunity to make sure that we don't get off target effects? So we don't affect species that we don't want to have a negative impact on. And so we put it through those filters and then we say, okay, this is a great, this is a great target for us. We can make something safe. It's going to be a differentiated product on the market. And then we go and we screen a library. And so with our partner, we screen a DNA encoded library. It has 140 billion compounds. The, a, a typical ag library would have maybe something in the or, single digit millions of compounds that they will screen one at a time. If you tried to do that method with 140 billion compounds, I think you'd be at it for about, you know, 100 years trying to actually survey all of this diversity. And so, but in our case, you take this target, it's sort of in solution, so a very highly purified protein, and you just stick it in a soup that has 140 billion compounds, each with an individual barcode that tells you what it is. And you look for things that stick, that bind to it, because if it binds, then maybe it can stop its activity. Then what you do is you just cleave off the DNA, wash away everything that's not sticking, and you sequence, you do it. And this is where it gets back to the technology that's really had a huge impact in the last two decades is you deep sequence and then you get counts. You say, well, how often did I see this particular molecule bind to the target of interest? And then you're off to the races. Now you have a starting point and you can visualize how that starting point actually binds into the pocket of the enzyme. And so you can make it better. Pharmaceutical companies have used that approach because you know, they have targets they, that they know are useful for certain disease types. But, you know, the, this innovation is very new to the pharmaceutical sector as well. 
but it has been using it. And the and the beautiful thing about it is not only does it give you these new starting points, but it gives you a whole data set that's amenable to using AI and machine learning and modeling to improve the way you progress it to, to the final commercial product. So beyond the very exciting combo of science and technology, how do these crop protection discoveries actually land in the hands of growers? Enco has only been around for four years, and its products aren't yet being sold to farmers. But Enco, which is backed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, among others, plans to establish itself as a platform for developing multiple new products. So you start to evaluate a combination of not just the, the how well it works on the science side and you know controlling a pest, but then you start combining that with the market potential for it. So things like controlling glyphosate-resistant Palmer pigweed is a huge market because, I mean, it's just in corn and soy and however many 90 million acres um, in the U.S., I mean, you're starting to talk about a very large market need. And uh, the crop protection market is about a $60 billion market today. And so there's lots of opportunity for differentiation. We've been talking a little bit about biologicals, and I, I guess a lot of the companies are like a product company, as in we've discovered this kind of yeah. bacteria, or we've discovered this, you know, so, something in the kind of product space. But you guys yeah. are more about this process, or can you just clarify, like, what part does Enco actually kind of own, or what's the secret sauce that you guys do versus more of the kind of basic science? Yeah, so we want, we are actually, we want to be a product company too, but we have a pipeline. So we'll have multiple products. So we have, if we talk about a target as a single thing that could produce, you know, studying one target could produce several products from that. We hope to have a pipeline that's continuously creating products for the market in different segments. In Nancy's experience, the science can be complex but the solutions have to be simple to fit into existing farming systems. This has meant pivoting not just the technology, but also RapidAim's idea of who the customer actually is. It's changed substantially. In fact, one of our first pivots was on our technology. And I would say a second big pivot has been around our go-to-market. So the first one was when we first did an accelerator program, our technology was camera-based technology. It was a way to patent on taking high quality, low power images of insects entering a trap. But when we got out of the building and really started to talk with end users, nobody wanted pictures of insects. They just wanted to know whether they were there. <laughs> so we really pivoted our technology to come up with what we use today, which is an ultra low power capacitance type sensing. You know, It allows for very too small lithium ion batteries to last for 18 months. So super low maintenance. So that was a key pivot technology wise. The key pivot for our go-to-market strategy is, of course, our first end users and, and customers we thought were growers. And that has been valuable in terms of demonstrating the, the value of our product. So now we have over 500 sensors deployed across Australia, 170 end users. So we understand the quality and reliability of our product, but most importantly, we understand how it's being used and the value. But now, our really, our customer is most likely will be, and, and, and groups that we're working with at the moment, will be crop protection companies. So it opens the doors for biologicals and biopesticides. But most importantly, what growers say they like about it is that it proves whether control is working and where it's working. So, so yeah, we've had um, a massive pivot, massive change to who our actual customers are likely to be. 
Yeah. Well, the the classic startup journey, I was looking at stats the other day that said when startups take the kind of scientific method approach of startups and, and do that work to get out and understand customers and change and pivot, they're like 50% more likely to pivot and also something like 10 times more likely to raise money and succeed when they have that listen to customers, change and adapt approach. So, so there's good science behind that methodology as well. I'm really interested in the point you just made around trust and, and kind of certainty from growers, like in talking to customers customers and in talking to them about their pest management strategies, what have you learned about how to get trust and ultimately kind of adoption from farmers? Because we talk about how important trust is in agriculture. What, what's your observations been? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I'll first talk about it just from the perspective of technology creators. We have highly skilled, highly technical people in the company, all incredibly capable. It's both a good thing and a bad thing. The great thing about it is that we have made something amazing that can really have huge impact and change the way that pests are managed. The bad thing is when you have highly skilled and highly talented people, they often don't need to leave the room to create something amazing. Now, the problem with that is, is it useful? (laughs) So, you know, just because we can doesn't mean we should. So getting out and talking to customers, understanding their pain points, putting our technology in their hands is absolutely critical. And really listening to them when they say whether they need something to solve a problem or not. So I think it really boils down to just because we can doesn't mean we should. And we have a a strategy right now where we know to break down barriers to market entry, one of the things is start to add, uh, be able to detect other key pests with our same piece of hardware. And so our first application domain has been fruit fly, but they also want it for things like cotling moth and light brown apple moth, which are pests of fruit and vines, because they don't want to increase their cost of pest management. They don't want to also pay for somebody to go around and check those traps. They want it all in one. The other focus is Pest forecast, they would they always want to know what's happening in their region and when is there likely to be a big problem. So we're also adding value to our current real-time data flow by generating uh, pest forecasts. And that's because our customers said, if only they had that piece of information, here's what they would do differently. They would be able to plan better. They would be able to organize their workflow on, on their farms better. That's kind of where I wanted to go, Nancy, was the, like, we talk about technology is useful, but just like you said, just because you can build it doesn't mean you should, and it has to actually create a new decision or add some kind of value for the farmer to help them change practices. We kind of came at this whole opportunity area from the from looking at biologicals and some of the challenges around biologicals and different forms of agroecological approaches. What are you seeing in terms of, you know, does Rapid Aim so far enable other kinds of pest control or more biologicals or overcome some of the challenges of biologicals for some of your customers? Yeah. So two parts on that, Sarah. The first part is traditionally the way in which we manage pests, which are highly mobile, right? They're moving around all the time. They don't recognize an orchard or farm or state border. However, the way in which we manage them is that we just take action and control at the scale of a field, maybe a farm. And so the insect pest happily moves around. And that's why we continue to kind of chase our tail with pest management. So this is important that we start to align the scale at which we create information and the scale at which we control and manage the problem. 
this becomes really important for biologicals because a lot of biologicals require early detection and early control. So for example, there's some exciting new mating disruption technology that's sprayable. So mating disruption technology, what it does is it confuses the male moths, as an example, so that they're not able to find female moths to actually mate. So then it causes population suppression. However, nothing if a farmer applies this mating disruption technology on a field, nothing stops an already mated female from coming in from next door and laying her eggs on a corn crop and causing damage. So it's critical that it is used early and at scale. So not just one farm, but the farm and their neighbors, and even understanding across a region. You know, a second example would probably be from some of the viruses that work against insects. They need to be applied at a very specific timing, at a very specific stage of the insect. And also they break down so quickly with UV degradation. So timing is everything. In addition to listening to customers and getting the business model right, startups have to attract the capital they need to grow. Jacqueline says venture capital, while not a perfect system, is essential in tackling some of the big problems in ag. You know, so I'm trying to picture a world where when I started as an entrepreneur and there was absolutely no capital being allocated in agriculture, where would we be today if we didn't have this uptick in in venture funding? So it's absolutely essential. Now, I think a lot of people complain or the biggest complaint about venture funding is that there's a fund life cycle and really to build something big and sustainable takes time. And so if, and probably almost certainly before the five-year or seven-year investment cycle that a VC would like to invest and then get an exit. And so I think that's where the disconnect is. And I think with ag, it's going to be interesting to watch and see how it all plays out. And so you think of it as an ecosystem that you have to develop. Now, I think we're, I'd say ag is firmly mature in its early stage investor community. And so I think that that's, that's great. But when it comes to the transition to a growth stage, that's where I think we need to continue to have larger biotech funds or banks or pension funds that, that are really interested in looking at this sector because of its importance for global climate change, sustainability, and all of it, and really move us into that next era of having a much more mature funnel into the public markets or to very sustainable businesses from the, you know, that have started from the ground up, which is, is interesting. Yeah, definitely. The Obviously, I believe in venture capital as a partner. I wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't be VC otherwise. But that it, you know, it's not, it's not the one model that works, and you do need other people on that journey. So I, I agree with you there. What advice would you have for kind of going back to your background for a researcher or someone who's kind of more on the the science side and wants to get into the entrepreneurship or venture capital world? I mean, I think it's it's a fabulous path because, you know, so much of what you do in venture is evaluate technology, right? And so my recommendation of somebody, you know, I think getting some concrete experience in a startup is really helpful, maybe even in a larger company, but having that sort of operational experience is 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 really helpful so that when you are on the board or when you are making an evaluation for an investment, you kind of know some of the things that are important and what to, to what to look for because it's 
I think it's harder to do it just by the book. I asked Nancy the same question. What advice she has for any researchers looking to make the leap to entrepreneurship? I I guess sometimes I meet colleagues who are trying to do a little bit of both. They're still trying to do their research while thinking about commercializing the technology. Because I'm asked that too. Why didn't you just stay at CSRO and, and, and do this as well? Focus is critical because the only thing we really have as a startup is speed. And focus and being both developing our technology, implementing our technology, taking it to market, the focus is both essential but incredibly satisfying. So I think it's an, you know, a fantastic opportunity to use your science skills and training in this way to really have impact, an impact that I feel is a, a different dimension than the type of impact you can have from writing papers and, and giving keynote addresses. That's important as well. But this is a new dimension, and it's a dimension that every single day, the, the intense focus on solving this one problem means that you're bringing a team of great skill, great minds, great people to actually deliver on something you believe is possible. So nothing's more exciting than that. And that's it for another episode of AgTech So What, brought to you by the Agthentic Group. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Nancy Shellhorn and Dr. Jacqueline Hurd. For more resources from this podcast, please visit our website at agtechsowhat.com. I'm Sarah Nolette. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.